I think one of the uh, real possibilities that Sangha can do for us, I often say that if you just come, if you just come to into the Dharma and you just stay for a while, the cucumber, the cucumber will pickle, will become a pickle. <laughs> and it takes a while, right? You have a cucumber and you have to put it in the right brine or whatever it is, and it becomes a pickle. But this is good. <laughs> and what happens is that it starts affecting you, starts getting into your bloodstream. It, like any community from which we are raised, when we don't realize the effect it starts having on our consciousness, on the way we perceive events, on the cultural imperatives it holds, on the way that we look at life. And when we come into the Sangha, and we start really allowing ourselves to be affected because we feel the rightness of that direction and the assurance that it gives us in terms of a world view and a way that we want our life to grow, we start opening up, releasing the resistance, and it really starts affecting us. Uh, so many people try to take the Dharma without that pickling juice, you know, and it, really it's each one of us affecting the other not just the teacher affecting the student. And you really begin to feel if you come, and you just come, you just come to events such as these or whomever you choose, but you just put yourself in there and over time it really does orient us in a, in a proper direction. Two expressions of our minds like anger. That's not one that many of us would normally move into or even explore without the courage of the mass of the Sangha behind us. We meet here on a common theme, but it's more important than the common theme is the um, willingness to look at it in an impartial, non-judgmental way. To really explore something that most of us, if we're honest, are very afraid of. We don't trust our anger. In fact, the messages of our youth may well have been, if I am angry, I either get rejected or punished. If my father is angry, I get abused or I'm in pain in some way. If my mother gets angry, she withdraws. And so my relationship to anger has been configured from my family community and from the greater community in general, and we get this sense of not just anger, but the backlog of emotional responses that we have to anger, the secondary trauma that we, from which we view anger. And usually it's fear or the sense of pain or something's out of control here, right? Because we have been inducted into that theme through whatever life and family situations we have been. We learn it. We learn it. And so we just are basically mistrusting of this. I can't think of another emotion that has uh, as much baggage around it as anger. And so we, and well into our spiritual journeys, that baggage continues. And it's not until and unless we at some point feel its reoccurrence and our contraction to its occurrence and 
how we continue to subvert the messages of ourselves from anger because you can't just be afraid of anger without anger holding us in relationship to a kind of disposition of its own tone. In other words, we imbue, embody anger within ourselves because we are afraid of it. And it's that very fear. And so we have a, 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 a passive, could be a passive-aggressive tone to our, um, our own sense of conflict or it can be um, it could, could just be outright rage that we see exploding upon the theme of our minds when we're in the car or when we have um, the right circumstances arise. We don't know where it came from. Road rage is a perfect example of that. And what the community, the Sangha community can do is say, okay, we all have this. We're not trying to hide from one another. We're going to put it out in the center of this and we're going to look. We're going to be willing to investigate and explore the derivation, where we, where we hold on to what we believe in ourselves, the assumptions around this thing, many of them psychologically based, so we can't be afraid of the psychological. As um, Narayan mentioned yesterday, uh, you use whatever tools you can, and you just... You, you most of us can't go to an absolute emptiness and see anger as empty. We have to use tools such as the thought tool that she mentioned this morning. Therapy is another tool. There's just too much coming at us here to be able to get a real discerning and objective and clear view of what might be arising. And because in this culture in particular, most of us have grown up with some sense of unworthiness. There is nothing that makes us feel more worthy in ourselves than the righteousness of anger. And so it's not just an induced cultural phenomena with its fear of abandonment and pain and all of that, but it's also a way that we can feel the whole of our own self-misery called me and the unworthiness of me. Because when I'm angry, by God, I am the queen or king of the hill. And so we're so reluctant to fall out of our own graces by coming out of anger. Where what are we left with? We're left with our unworthiness. That anger becomes... We feed anger as a way to maintain our, the only sense of self-nobility we have. Our righteousness. And I see so many people being righteous who are really good-spirited people. But they won't give up their righteousness because they refuse to feel the unworthiness that that, that trumps. And they're good-hearted people. And they think as long as their righteousness is at George Bush or the climate or something that feels an embracing picture, then they have every right to continue to infuse that with energy never realizing that they're just, we're just bringing anger along with us in a disguised form that seems collectively okay, but it's still anger at its base. And then, then, then there's a sobriety that comes up to us. We just become sober in this thing. And that is really, if I have a message, a theme, it's that sobriety. We just 
can't keep carrying the issues forward. No matter how socially relevant they seem to be or justifiable or fair or, or anything, or uh, of serving the poor or anything, if it has a tinge of that um, abrasive, divisive feeling that anger brings, it's not acceptable, period. It's just not. And that's, we have to sober to that effect. We have to find. We're so afraid that we wouldn't have any way to act if we weren't acting from this kind of justifiable rage that we have in us. We think we would be without intention, but it isn't true. It isn't true because the heart, which feels the injustices in a completely different way than the rage of anger holds injustice, moves in accordance in a very different way, a holistic way. Doesn't let Martin Luther King didn't let go of the issue. Gandhi didn't let go of the issue. They didn't hold it in a divisive way, but the heart wouldn't let them let go of the issue. You still march towards wholeness, towards completion, and injustice is part of that that needs to be needs to be seen, needs to be understood, needs to be... And sometimes the way to do that, as in those two examples, is to show each other, to show the people that are holding the division what it looks like to march towards unity. And one famous uh, letter that I read that I wish I had brought, but I didn't, Martin Luther King, he was in, in jail at the time, and he said something to the effect, and this is not even close to the eloquence of his words, but he, something like, I will, we will continue to march forward because we know that this is a true way. And through our dedication to that principle, we will heal those of us who rebel against that principle. We will show them their own light um, through their anger, through their own uh, reaction to our healing force of unity, they will heal themselves. Hmm? So that's what we're doing. This is a tremendous opportunity to bring up something that most of us fear, perhaps worse than any other emotion, and explore it uh, in a very legitimate way so that we can no longer have the same cultural intonation to it. So let's look at some of the uh, causes of anger. I just want to bring them up in general and perhaps in discussion we can further explore them, but I think it's important just to get a a general sense. Uh, And I'm going to I'm going to talk about that, but I'm also going to talk about those in relationship to an exercise that I was going to give you, but we can laden this weekend with exercises and and and, and we wanted to balance it sufficiently with stillness and quiet of sitting and some walking and some reflection rather than just give you exercise after exercise, but one that I think that on your own you can use um, very well is simply writing down three lists. One is a list as a small child what I was trained. I was trained to be what? Trained to be good, trained to be kind, trained to be... Right? We, we have 
to be fair, to be just, to be considerate. As a Boy Scout, it was trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. <laughs> okay, so that's what I was trained to be. As, as an adult, right now as an adult, I, what, what you require yourself from that training, what has, what has continued uh, as your present day idealism for your, for your I'm going to be kind in, and bring in your spiritual idealism as well because that is equally as forcefully against, uh, forcefully against the opposite. I will be kind, I will be sweet, I will be nice, I will be gentle, I will be... I mean, there's a, when you get into the spiritual movement, a whole array of very enticing states to be accomplished can seem the point of being spiritual, can it? To be a nice person. Right? So you want to list what you're holding yourself to because list three is going to show us the opposite. List three. The negative emotions hidden behind list two. For example, I have a friend who's sick at the hospital. I am tired and worn out, but still I think I should go see her because that is what my first two lists demand. Right? I go see her, but below that action is what? List three, resentment. But because I hold myself to list one and two, I won't even acknowledge list the subversive quality of the emotional motion of resentment, of the fact that not, I'm, totally, I'm not totally on board with wanting to go here. Another example, and I'm just going to read this one. Some, suppose someone undermines you at work. You would say, I'm upset because I could lose my job. But what you really are upset is that your second list is being undermined, not your job. The problem is not what she or he does. The problem is that she is attacking your second list. The second list says life should be fair. Her actions are exposing your third list and you have to feel the unpleasant feelings associated with that list. She has brought your fear and anger into the open. So the sense that we don't completely open to all of the emotional overtones and undertones because we have a particular idealism of life. This need for life to be fair. It simply isn't true. It's a mind, it's mind generated. It's not heart, it's mind. Mind sets up red lights and stop signs. And you say, well, we need to have them. Yes, we do, but not emotionally. Because when we emotionally set up red stop signs and fairness issues, and you look into, at nature, big fish shouldn't eat small fish. Life shouldn't live on life. But life does live on life. And there's a, a terrible sense in us, a, almost a primal sense, that if we gave ourselves over to that level of reality, something primal and destructive would come out of us because we see big fish eating small fish. 
So we don't trust, or many of us don't trust, this really inherent natural quality called harmony with life, harmony with nature, awareness governing itself within the view that awareness offers, which is interconnectedness. We're afraid we're going to take our disconnectedness into that interconnectedness and then we will be savage to it. But that's not what happens. It's that when we give ourselves over to the natural way of life, our view changes too. It's like being the cucumber being fully pickled. And it becomes the very way, the very statement of our life. And we don't have to hold a first list, a second list, or a third list in this. Do you see? This fairness issue is a is much of, if we look at your, of our righteous anger, especially in this time of turbulence, you will feel, see fairness basic to that. And may I just say, within fairness, and I think this is an important point, you see, usually we can find the heart's expression even within the more difficult emotions like anger or rage, because it's something we really care about that's not happening. Our heart feels the uh, injustice of the division, which it always will feel. It's called compassion. And when you feel the injustice of the division, the pain that's occurring from the division, and injustice, then the, what the mind does is it sets up a righteous attitude to the perpetrators of that injustice. And it then divides the world, as we always do, between those who are doing what the fairness issue requires and those who are not. But if we can find out, and, and when we get anger, it's angry, it's because what we care about deeply we, is blocked. Something is blocking that issue of care. And the injustice rises, the righteousness rises from it, we feel a little bit out of control in that moment and the righteousness arises and we divide the seams into those that do and those that don't. But if we go to the caring, if we forget the righteousness, you see, this is where you have to reprogram yourself. We, if we go to the caring, the heart comp- component of this, <clears throat> and genuinely look at the love that we have for the issue, the love will bring us back into the interconnection Excuse me, I have allergies. <clears throat> the love will bring us back to the interconnectedness. And so we can, we can then honor the love from which uh, the, the rupture of that issue became you know, d- derived itself into the anger. But if we come back into just the, the love for we, the love of I, you know, whatever, whatever the issue is. I'm not going to pick an issue because just whatever the issue is, just the love of it. There can be healing. We can transform the anger from moving out into the self-righteousness back to its derivation, which was the caring and the affection and the love we had for an issue. And we can look at a new way that we can respond to that issue rather than to rip it apart and put those against and those opposed. Hmm? The other thing that I 
think it's very important about anger is that whenever we are separated from what we care about, there's going to be grief. And much of anger, and grief makes us vulnerable, and we mentioned this yesterday. When we are vulnerable, especially in grief, we feel, um, we feel lost in terms of what we can do. We feel severed. It's very helpful to realize that we're grieving. If many of us in this room, if this election is lost in accordance to how you hold it, there will be tremendous anger. If you look at that anger, it will be because of grief. This world could have been so different if Al Gore had been elected, right? You can do, but it's grief. Go to the issue of grief because grief will make you tender. It will make you sharp-tongued. It will make you tender. When you look out at the world from grief, the world is very tender. It's soft. And from that perspective, from that point of view, it comes together again. It touches itself. It touches you. It touches the heart. Grief is a healing emotion. Grief is, a, is an interconnected emotion if we use it right. And it can, it can bridge the distance that the, the vulnerability of grief then goes to anger. And in that vulnerability, uh, we divide the world. We separate it out, you see. So if we realize that we, okay, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm angry, what am I grieving in this moment? And then go to the grief. It gives you a very different way, a very different sense of how to, to respond to the situation than an angry response. Now, another aspect of anger that comes out is loss of control. And as I mentioned, loss of control uh, has deep psychological issues around our sense of self-validation and our sense of self-reliance and in almost based upon the theme that it's all up to me and that I need to be in control and I need to... And so you can see anger arising often when life is out of control, when we lose our car keys. Or if you're like me, your car in, at, at the grocery store parking lot. <laughs> Where did I park it? <laughs> you can see how much abuse we take on this, Right? And so, okay, loss of control is an interesting one. Again, only because we have the intention to move into this deeply would we ever go here. But what does it feel like? What's the feeling of being out of control? And I've made this into a project in myself because I'm saying this because of where I've come, where I'm traversing, right? Not because it's written in some book. But when I'm out of control, which if I can catch it, which is knee-jerk, it's an interesting state because it's like instability everywhere and and the, the whole of the house of made of cards comes tumbling. You know, this is the three pigs. This is like, I'm getting a, the wolf is at my door here. <laughs> His house is not of bricks. So it just gets blown completely apart. And uh, what does the world look like? I'm interested in that question. You know, and you have to have a certain courage, certain courage to ask that. But it's, 
And you know, what I do, and I would suggest this, and I'm not in any way detracting from the Buddha's anger that she talked about yesterday, but take that sense of out of control because I take it too seriously. When I take it too seriously, something's wrong, right? When you get too angry, you're, something's wrong. The seriousness is a, a sign that something's wrong. <laughs> so what I will do now when I get seriously is I'll go into a room where no one can hear me or see me and I'll exaggerate that. I'll make it like I'll have a tantrum. I'll lie down on the floor and go... <laughs> I don't do this anymore. <laughs> but this is how it was... And then, I, until I smile, until I've exaggerated to such an extent, there's just a smile that comes because it's ridiculous. I mean, you, when you exaggerate something beyond the theme, you can see just how silly it is. So you over-exaggerate it, you smile at it, and you go, oh my God. And it does resent, give you a different perspective when that arises. It's not so serious here. You know, let's allow ourselves to have some, some play in this world. And so out of control, you can play that one out really well. Oh, I don't know. You know, you can yell and scream about how, and furthermore, put everything in its place and don't ever, you know, it's like you can get really gone on that one. I can. And, you can, and so you can be so demonstrative that you begin to laugh because it's impossible. You see at some point the universe, it's impossible. You're fighting against something that's impossible. Forever we're going to be out of control. Forever, forever it's going to be unfair. Forever. It's never going to, we're not going to line up all the boxes so everything is fair. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And there's a huge grief that comes realizing that this world is not going to respond in accordance to our demands. And we can see the possibility of using that grief in a way other than to fracture it further. The third quality, and again each of these qualities has at its seat a very deeply held self-assumptions that we have to explore these self-assumptions, these ways that we hold ourselves in respect to the emotion. Because the emotion itself is often the symptom of the way we hold ourselves. And to explore those, that sense of inadequacy, to explore those root issues, those root psychological issues can help, can help create a lightness, but also are almost, it's almost essential if we ever really want to come and take, this, take Buddhism beyond self. Because wherever there's an assumed sense of self that's believed in, when the conditions arise for that assumption to arise, there's not going to be selflessness. There's not going to be freedom. There's going to be the play of those assumptions upon life. And often those assumptions are based upon core issues that we've held since our childhood. It's not that we have to go back in and explore it analytically. Those assumptions are happening within the moment that we're enraged that we're out of control. Those moments in which we feel unworthy or inadequate are the reason that we are exploding upon the scene with our anger. 
and we can turn back in and look at that what the way we're feeling about ourselves rather than the symptom which is the anger explosion from that so it's not, I'm not suggesting analytical analysis for years and years because this is happening simultaneously to the anger arising and the one that I think is an, uh, a very um, uh, um, central cause to much of our anger remember fairness loss of control and this one is uh, being discounted as insignificant being ignored or negated and it can happen you know God's not listening to me you know why isn't you know why is this why is this happening to me that kind of self-pitying quality to it what what's you know why is there it can happen at work if somebody doesn't take your opinion into same consideration. It happens. It's amazing how quickly it happens. You know, um, if you think you should be uh, have some, be should be heard, and other people aren't listening to us, or you say hello to someone and they don't say hello back. Just in the very simple transactions that we have that. We're so keyed to th- see, or that that sense of self-pain is so acute in us, of of that uh, being discounted, negated, not being worth paying attention to. That hole, that terribly painful hole in ourselves. And, and you can see how you lose connection to yourself. You assume a tragedy of being that isn't true. You've disconnected to the person who just did it because you're angry now at them. And you don't even know why. And the whole thing just kind of implodes on itself. Now Buddhism moves us through all of this pain. It's bear rabbit being dragged through the briar patch. At first it looks thorny, but it's actually to our own service that this is occurring. We come here and we bring this emotion called anger and we put it right out in front. And we're going to look at it and we're going to dissect it and we're going to have a different opinion and a different attitude towards it. An attitude that's held within discovery. Within the possibilities that this anger can can it can transform itself. And when we can do that, when we can begin to look at it not from our history, but from what the potential, the transformative potential, we can really use the energy of anger, which is quite energetic, it's arousing. But we don't have to use the division, the tone of the anger, the divisive view from which the anger uh, assumes the world. And then we can stay very energetic, and yet it does not have to uh, lead to unskillful behavior. And it's just it's just very helpful to bring it up in community, isn't it? To start talking about where we hold it in reserve and in contempt, especially in a Buddhist community. I I I, I go for the jugular, and this is a jugular. 
You know, this shouldn't be happening here. I shouldn't be feeling anger. I've been sitting for 15 years. I've done lots of workshops and retreats. And yet here it is. Here it is. Now what are we going to do with that, you see? Just the willingness, okay, the, the willingness to see it from a discovering point of view is humility. And if Buddhism doesn't hold humility, if we can't look again at the 10,000 idiots within us, as Hafiz's poem from yesterday, what are we doing? This isn't about becoming sophisticated. It's about becoming innocent. It's about seeing anew, seeing refreshed and looking, not from the history of what we have brought, but from the manifestation that is and where that manifestation is still tying us in knots and going in there and untying it and feeling the freedom that's inherent within that attitude. Because anger, unobserved, over time, builds itself into an attitude, into a disposition, into a way we get out of, the be- out of bed in the morning. And some of us, only after long periods of s- sincere intention, even begin to pick up that we have that attitude that we're carrying forth into the day. What attitude is creating the picture of life as I see it? And just in that is a sense of thought, we don't know. We don't know what the point of all this is. But you get a sense that it is moving. If we're willing to just observe, if we're willing to just be aware, if we're willing to make the unconscious conscious, good things happen. If we're just willing to see where we haven't seen before, and sometime in the middle, in the middle of trauma, in the middle of rage, we can't stop ourselves. It's too. But we can just kind of. It's like a, a glancing. We see a glancing, a piece of it. Just something passes by, it's like a shadow movement. And that's good enough. Just keep our eyes as open as they can be. That's all that's required here. And slowly the picture of what is occurring becomes more and more defined. But it can only occur if we're not afraid of seeing it. If we're willing to see wherever the, whatever the mind does to us, we can move forward. Okay, I'll thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.